0: George Parker is Professor Emeritus at the Royal Military College of Canada, based in Kingston. He's the author of The Beginnings of the Book Trade in Canada, that was published in 1985. Uh, The Clockmaker, series 1, 2 and 3. It's a scholarly edition in which you try to find the most accurate text
1: that we can put together from what the author might have wanted, including a big introduction about how the work came about and how it was written. A lot of notes. It's in fact one of three in a series. The Sam Slick, the American clockmaker who comes to uh, to the Maritimes to sell clocks to um, <laughs> country people in the Maritimes.
0: Thomas Chandler Halliburton was yeah. the quote the first Canadian author to be acclaimed in the English-speaking world.
1: The first bestseller in this country, okay. no doubt about it.
0: Finally, your work on the beginnings of the book trade in Canada served as a foundation for the more recently published uh, History of the Book in Canada.
1: One of the foundations, uh, and I contributed to all three volumes. At present I'm working on 20th century Toronto publishers.
0: Our conversation today is going to focus on the Methodist House Press, Briggs, and the Ryerson Press. All entities that are somehow connected. Let's start at the beginning then.
1: The beginning is 1829 when the the Methodist Conference in Ontario and Quebec decided they they wanted a, a religious newspaper, the Christian Guardian. They chose Edgerton Ryerson, a young up-and-coming Methodist clergyman, to be the editor. So they got a printing press and they got it going in the 18 late 1820s. Through the next century and a half, it had various names, but it, it became known as the Methodist Book and Publishing House by the late 19th century. Ryerson left it, I think, in the 1840s. He went on to help found the public school system of Canada West and then Ontario. The head of that house was usually called the book steward. The most prominent of these in the late 19th century was William Briggs. The book steward would always be a Methodist or later United Church minister. He was born in 1836, died in 1922. By 1879, the Methodist book and publishing host was a big concern.
0: What well, would they publish primarily? They books? Were,
1: well, no, they... This gets a bit tricky. They were really in the business to publish Sunday school papers, different kinds of Sunday school papers for children. The Christian Guardian, the Methodist magazine. The Christian Guardian was more, I think, more religious-oriented, and the Methodist magazine was perhaps a little more general. But these had widespread circulation all over Canada well beyond the Methodist Church, members of the Methodist Church, you could get them by subscription through the mails. Uh, you could also get them in in local retail stores. The Methodist Book and Publishing Company in Toronto, uh, let's say a hundred years ago, just about the time they were moving into w- what is now the Much Music building on on Queen Street West. Th- this was not merely a printing company. It was a printing company. It was a publishing company. They had a library department. They had an educational department. They had a publishing department. They had a retail store. And they had a binding department. They had about seven major departments in the building, which w- remained um, in in their hands until I think around the 1950s when they, when they s- moved up to uh, uh, St. Clair Avenue East. So the Methodist publishing houses in the United States were the same way. They encompassed a whole lot of different departments and branches associated with printing and publishing. But they were mainly, at first, printers of magazines and devotional works, some hymnaries, a lot of sermons. So there was quite a trade back and forth. And religious books sold quite well. They got into textbooks in the late 19th century. Some local Canadian ones from British and occasionally from American sources too.
0: Textbooks that would would be distributed oh, oh, to schools, oh, yeah. elementary or high schools? Oh, yeah. or? Uh,
1: yes, there wasn't that much in the way of what we'd call university textbooks in those
0: days. Were they uh, printed in, in, in England?
1: From the 40s and 50s onward, a number of Canadian firms like John Lovell in Montreal, who was perhaps the biggest printer publisher in Canada before mm-hmm. the Methodist Book and Publishing, sort of took over that that title. In Toronto, the Gage Company and Cop Clark and a man called James Campbell who was associated with the Nelsons of Edinburgh. So the the big markets were textbook markets. They always have been. All all kinds of publishers say, this is our bread and butter. They were printing them a lot of them in Canada. They would get the rights to print a reader or a grammar or a speller, or certain history books. Some would be imported, but an awful lot of these books were being printed in presses in Montreal and Toronto especially. So they'd
0: get the sheets or the plates?
1: Sometimes they got the sheets. Often they got the plates. As soon as stereo plates came in, you know, it was so easy to make uh, another set of stereo plates. So... They'd be sent into Canada, sometimes rented or sometimes just sold out, right? Okay. There were a variety of ways in which these things could be arranged, but normally they were, they were under license, or it was a kind of agency arrangement so that some profits went back to the original owner of the copyright in the United States or Great Britain. Okay. But it, it made a lot of money for these companies. They were turning out school books like crazy, and, and Sunday school books and denominational papers things like that
0: Canadian content at this point there's some
1: there's not all that much. Some books sometimes were adapted mm-hmm. for Canadian use, uh, if it was a geography or a history.
0: But they'd add a chapter or the introduction. There, yeah, or... Uh,
1: there were Canadian books, there's no doubt about that, and there were Canadian authors who, who were uh, publishing textbooks, but the big money was, was being made on books that were being adapted or licensed for use in Canada. Both Quebec and Ontario required that textbooks for the schools be printed. In Canada. In, in Canada, yeah. yeah, in the province.
0: It's almost like a tariff, isn't it? Oh,
1: well, because the printing unions were very, very strong, and they really had to fight off the American uh, unions. Of course, the Americans were incredibly protectionist, but with, yeah. what, a market of 40 or 50 million people, they could be what they wanted to.
0: Yeah. But They were protectionist, but they also didn't care about copyright either.
1: true. It varies. Um, you get people like Harper and Brothers and, and some of the others who... When they realized they were getting uh, very good sales in the States from people like Dickens and Lord Macaulay and George Eliot, you know, the standard uh, major British uh, authors, they began to treat with them very well. Even my man Halliburton, once he was popular in England, he and his English publisher were making arrangements with a Philadelphia publisher. They'd make sure that that publisher got the, if not plates, that normally the proof sheets that would be sent over by ship as soon as possible and you hope that the sheets will land in the right in the right hands of yeah. the publisher who you feel should be the legitimate publisher so yeah there was a lot of piracy by the 80s and 90s the the textbook printing industry was just incredibly lucrative and profitable yeah. for three or four Toronto companies among them uh, Methodist and Briggs
0: the money was pouring where in, back into the the Methodist Church
1: well, some of the profits stayed with, with within the publishing house itself in order to buy new machinery or things like that. A lot of it went back as pension funding for uh, uh, for retired
0: ministers what what percentage um, of the say, of the church going public were Methodists back then
1: i can 't give you a figure offhand, but probably the Methodist Church was probably the largest Protestant church in the country. Larger than the Presbyterians and the and the Anglicans and the Baptists, no Mm -hmm. doubt about that. And you know in nineteen twenty five, when the Methodists, practically all the Methodist (laughs) communions, and most of the Presbyterians, and I think all of the Congregational Church formed the United Church of Canada. Well The Methodist Book and Publishing House then became the United Church Publishing House. Methodist was printing for other publishers when Macmillan got set up here, or Oxford. George Morang, I guess? Well, yes, all those early publishers seemed to have used Methodist at one point or another. The other thing that changed in the 80s and the 90s the Berne Convention, the International Copyright Law, which now pretty well meant that piracy was going to be dead in Canada. By 1891 when the Americans and British agreed uh, on a reciprocal copyright. So a number of British firms opened up agencies in Canada Normally they would go to Clark or Methodist and say, you can be our agent for this year or five years or indefinitely. You, you So can- we
0: would ship you the books and you would distribute them and...
1: There are a variety of ways she was done. Sometimes the agency had to take all the books. Sometimes they could take certain of the books. Sometimes they could only take certain authors, or some authors were excluded because the author already had an arrangement with somebody else in the United States who said, no, no, we can't have that agency because we're already using somebody else in Toronto. So. You can only generalize up to a point. But what's important is Canadian literature suddenly became interesting to the British and the Americans in the 1890s. Really what was changing things was that Toronto publishers now had got over this reputation of being pirates. They really hadn't all been pirates, but just two or three of them, and British publishers realized there was a big market for distribution in Canada and they couldn't handle it from Britain where once bookstores might have sent out or ordered and they still did that, they decided it would be better to do this through distributors. So a lot of Toronto printer slash publishers became agents and became, if you like, wholesale importers distributors. That's what McClellan and Stewart was. That's how they started off, yeah. Yeah, you see their masthead all during the First World War, and it says importers, distributors,
0: and yeah. wholesalers. So they had That's warehouses, what. I assume. Yeah,
1: they, uh, different size warehouses. Uh, Oxford was always having problems with flooding in their warehouses oh, yeah, okay. or fires, that sort of thing. Yeah, as well as doing all the religious things, which would go under the uh, imprint of Methodist Book and Publishing House. William Briggs began doing commercial uh, publications under his name, a bit like in the Oxford University Press in England. The the publisher Humphrey Milver could publish under his own name, even though he was. Part of the Oxford, and this is why you see the Briggs Imprint. He has the right to make his own decisions about commercial ventures like novels, even some educational things appear with the Briggs imprint, so I think he's he's being the publisher with the risk he's taking a chance that he can make a a profit on them.
0: Does he look, first of all, to simply get the rights to a lot of foreign authors and publish them in Canada and distribute them here? Or does he start actively encouraging Canadian authors to come to him?
1: There's a bit of both. As far as the foreign authors are concerned, Most of these are well-known. So he's not really taking
0: much of a risk. He's not taking any risk if it's Kipling. No. Uh,
1: Kipling, I think, was being published by Morang and Macmillan. Culp-Clark was publishing Gilbert Parker. They normally printed these books in Canada because they were given the plates and they were given the rights and they could charge less for these books than the same book if it were imported from the United States or Britain. Until the British of course started coming up with what were called really inexpensive colonial editions. That is an edition just to be published in the colonies like India or Canada or Australia. And these were well-made, well-bound books.
0: I I would have expected those to be made out of cheaper material. No?
1: They may not have been as quite the same quality as the first edition but they were far better than the Americans could produce and far better than the Canadians. The typesetting, design, the look of the book, just the feel of a good uh, hardcover book. In the mid-1890s, it got to the point where in Canada, you could go into a bookstore and you could find the British edition, the American edition, and the Canadian edition. And this is when Canadians said, oh, come on now. We've got to do something about all these books that can seemingly come into this country, and who's making a profit? Out of that came a... Uh, well, a very short amendment to the Copyright Act of 1875 in 1900, and you and I could import one copy of a book, one or two copies of a book for our own personal use. But what it really was doing was allowing somebody like McClellan and Stewart, or Briggs, or Morang, or McLeod and Allen, to register the copyright in Canada and to be the exclusive agent which would be a business arrangement it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a legal yeah, arrangement yeah. that you would make with the Canadian government
0: would mean but that it, that would be it, the it, only book stable. that would show up on the shelf
1: that's right it's supposed to be the only yeah. book that shows up the shelf. now we know all through the 20th century this has been a problem the American copy coming in and underselling it up, because quite often the American copy was Remainder, somebody like Coles uh, could just bring in 500 remainder. Yeah, copies. Right. there uh, are always, the there have always been ways around this, and so you have to be on your guard. Yeah. anyway, this is what started to change publishing in Canada.
0: So, 1900, around 1900, you can,
1: yeah, and suddenly you have a whole lot of Canadian authors who are international bestsellers Ralph Connor, Lucy Bob Montgomery, Roberts. Well, Roberts was, Roberts had to make money, you know. Uh, he left his wife and family, and he had to he had to do something. <laughs> Robert Service, *Songs of a Sardo, One of the editors at Briggs was E. S. Caswell, uh, Edward Caswell. He had worked in various departments, but he ended up being the editor until about nineteen nine or ten, and then he went to the Toronto Public Library. He was one of the readers of *Songs of a Sardo, but one of the other readers was John McClelland. They all knew from what they had heard out west when they were traveling as as book travelers out west that, you know, these these ballads and songs were being very popular. Maybe we can publish them. Well, Briggs published it, but Service's father paid for it because Briggs and a lot of other printers were very sharp. Okay, I'll be the publisher, but you better guarantee the the production costs he was very he was a very sharp man that way but of course it became an international bestseller and it got picked up uh in the United States so
0: Briggs sell the rights to the United States
1: When something like that happens uh the author is involved in it too but the publisher is going to get quite a you know quite a a, a sizable amount because he's really acting as a literary agent in a way.
0: That's right, and he's also he's also foregoing the profit that he would make if he produced them and shipped them abroad. In effect, that's why he's being paid. Yes, Yeah.
1: and this is a problem with Canadian publishers almost up to the present time. You find a star, are you going to make enough copies that you can ship to Britain, the United States, Australia? It somehow has rarely worked that way. It, it's difficult to say who... Who really was responsible for Songs of a sardo getting published. John McClellan, in a letter that I read, claimed that, that he was responsible for it. Edward Dewart was somehow responsible too. It, it's conceivable, you see, that several of them in the publishing department and in the book traveler department who recognize these things say, come on, we've got yeah. to get this done.
0: You know yeah. that's, So would you say that would be the big, one of the first big commercial successes for Briggs?
1: Maybe one of the first big Canadian ones. That's what I mean. Not the first Canadian one, but one of the bigger Canadian ones. But there would have been very big successes with uh, late 19th century British
0: authors. Who were already established. Right now we're at 1900. Uh, Briggs is successfully embarking on a, quote, commercial Novels, fiction, poetry, yes. line of work separate yeah. from the Methodists, separate it, but connected, it, it, using and the same equipment. And equipment
1: and some of the same staff members, and these seem to be making money.
0: Okay, so yeah. then what happens?
1: Things look so good that a whole lot of Briggs employees decide, we'll set up on our own as agents. They were all the same age, Thomas Allen and Caswell and John McClellan and Gundy, S.B. Gundy who becomes the first manager of Oxford University Press. That was 1904. They all realize they can only go so far in the Methodist establishment, and they cannot be book steward like Briggs because they're not ministers. Right. You know, and they're all... 25 30 or so and they just see that things are going very well and that they can start out on their own and they can start small with a small office three or four of them sometimes in the same building or next door to each other they all yeah. knew each other played golf together went off to new york
0: with so, not a lot of capital to set the thing up you wouldn't need too much yeah. capital how no. did briggs feel about that
1: i'm not sure but I think he was losing good employees and maybe this showed up in what happened during the during the war years because the really good years when Briggs imprint is oh, looking really good is that first decade of the century and something happens during the first world war some of these young men had gone they were doing quite well McClelland and Stewart, who also <laughs> left Briggs a little later to join him and yeah, Goodchild good Fred Goodchild I think had been also in in the Briggs employ they they were all doing very well during the war because they they were importing sheets or plates or they were getting them from the States if they couldn't get them across the Atlantic and uh, anything on the war was selling like crazy. You know, and McClellan and Stewart, I think, had something like 45 books they published in 1917. They did quite well like this in the teens and even into the 20s sometimes and didn't do anything like this again until the 50s.
0: So we're through the First World War. Then yeah. things are looking looking good, and then Lorne Pierce comes on the scene. Yeah, for one thing, Briggs was getting older,
1: okay. and he had he had lost Caswell, his good editor. He had lost some really hot shot young men who, and we can see in their publishing careers, they did quite well as publishers or agents or distributors or. The other thing, uh, the people who were left to take over were not particularly imaginative or literary. One of them was a man by the name of Moore forgotten his initials. Later on, Lauren Pierce had <laughs> terrible times with Moore, who who just didn't approve of a lot of the books that that Pierce was interested in. The other thing, they put out so much money building that new uh, Methodist building on Queen Street
0: West. The one, that the Much yeah, Music yeah, one? the Much Music okay. one, oh yeah. When did they put that, all that money out? Uh, 12,
1: 13, 14. I think it opened about 1914. You know, it was it was a really big, expensive operation, and there's there may maybe some hanky panky in there. It's hard to say.
0: What do you mean, hanky panky? I
1: I think it's it's the way they accumulated the properties in order to buy this, selling this, and selling that sort of sort of thing. You mean
0: like money that. went into private people's? I'm pockets.
1: not. No, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, it might be better to say that there were some. There were some questionable financial arrangements uh, in order to finance that building.
0: Are you suggesting maybe that Briggs would have been part of that?
1: Maybe his son. I think he comes out of looking pretty clean.
0: Briggs does, but his son doesn't.
1: The son may have been doing more of the financial side of things, but I'm not implying that that anybody made a whole lot of money on. You know, I, I think Briggs had a fairly good estate when he died. This is a grey area, and this is something I haven't looked at for several years now.
0: You're making the point that, that the company invested in a building that was very expensive, so oh, that affected yes. the, oh, oh, the yes. running it, of the company. Yes, it,
1: yes, you can put it that way. Okay. Yeah. So,
0: at, yeah. at, at such and such a point, Lorne Pierce, how did oh, he come in?
1: Oh, well, what happens is, when Briggs retires in 1918, they get a new book steward by the name of Reverend Samuel Fallis, who takes over as book steward in 1919. Normally, if he were doing commercial things, his name would be used. And the joke has always been that the name Fallas is perhaps something that they wouldn't want that name in a denominational company. Anyway, he did a lot of reorganization, right within a year, and, and realized I've got to have somebody who can look after publishing. So he had just heard Lauren Pierce giving a talk. Lauren Pierce was a young minister, looked as if he had a good career ahead of him as a minister and as somebody important in the church. So Fallis said to him, Would you like to be literary editor and advisor? This is a new post we're setting up. And Pierce thought about it and said, Okay, yes. What he was supposed to do, I think, originally was that in, in the columns in the Christian Guardian, he would tell ministers what they should be reading or what's the newest book. It soon developed that maybe he should take over the, the commercial publishing side so that Fallis would be doing the denominational and the business end of things. Anyway, I don't think they got along all that well. Uh, there were all kinds of things. From 1920 to 1960, it's a very important time, Pierce through hard work and a missionary zeal for Canadian literature, Canadian culture. For that Ryerson name it should be a centre of culture uh, among publishers. Was
0: it his idea to change the commercial division into the Ryerson? Or? Uh,
1: no, th- this was before before he joined the company. Fallis and the others decided, look, maybe we should change the commercial side not to the name of of the present steward another name let's go back to edgerton yeah. Ryer's name let's use Ryer's so it doesn't name. it doesn't change every time yeah and it it's it's distinct from a person like thomas allen or john mcclaudland or, yeah. or mcmillan plus
0: it beats palace
1: well that that's the joke. There may be some truth in it. It's sure. hard to, it's hard to say now. Sorry,
0: they changed the name.
1: Oh, I think the name was changed in 1919, the year before uh Pierce came. Okay. So Pierce came as an employee of the Ryerson Press or the Methodist Book and Publishing House. In any case, he soon became in charge of the well, the Canadian publishing anyway, because the person who was still in charge of much of the agency things was a man called E.W. Walker. And he had been around from the 1890s, I think, until the 1940s or 50s. Mm. He had a lot to do with books coming in from the States or England, uh, wherever.
0: So really, uh, Lauren Pierce championed Canadian content yes, and literature. Yes, yeah.
1: In, in effect, he would be the publisher. He okay. was a publisher. He was also he, an editor.
0: He made the decisions, sought out and found the, yes, the good stuff? N-
1: yeah, normally he made the decisions. In some cases he was overruled by Moore and in one or two cases by Fowles. For example, he published... Newfoundland Verse in 1923-24 by E.J. Pratt. That was quite a successful book. I don't know if it made thousands of dollars or anything like that, but it got good critical reviews. Yeah. And they thought, we have a good author here. The next book was The Witch's Brew. Uh, I think Pierce would have been willing to take it, but I think he was overruled in that case. And, and of course, Pratt went off to Macmillan and had a fairly good relationship with uh, uh, Hugh um uh, okay. There was also a drinking situation <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) These people were great drinkers.
0: I think that's a given, right?
1: (laughs) So sometimes the Ryerson Press would lose an author because of the religious connection.
0: They were reluctant to take on what material they thought was risque? Well,
1: yes. Certainly when novels started to get more risque, say, in the 40s and the 50s, Pierce did not like this.
0: He was on side with.
1: It seems to depend certain novels, anyway. But he he published a lot of modernist poets, you yeah. know, like F. R. Scott, P. K. Page's marvelous first book of poetry. He developed an interesting friendship with uh, John Sutherland. Well, once Sutherland became a, a Roman Catholic and and read E. J. Pratt's poetry and. Oh, this is great. He and Pierce had, you know, a good relationship, and Pierce published some of his works. Pierce liked some of the modernists, but like a lot of other publishers of that day and age, sometimes they weren't sure what to make of them, or, or they knew they weren't going to sell, or um, I'm not saying they were pornographic. I, some, no, some certainly of the not by I standards. Uh, no, no. Yeah. One of the chances that, that Pierce did take was with uh, Frederick Philip Grove. Grove had published a a book of essays the year before with McClellan and Stewart. That that was a cause celeb uh, in a way, Uh, Settlers of the Marsh. Well, it's about a naive young uh, Swede who falls for the town whore. Well, she's not quite a whore, but maybe people have slept with her before our young Swede protagonist does. And they separate when all this comes out. Later on in life, they get together again. So you can call it a nice sort of autumnal kind
0: of. Is that our season. Scarlet Letter? Mm, no, I never sure.
1: thought of it. I never thought of it that way. But it's it's a bit like that. Uh, she she may have the wrong kind of reputation, but she doesn't deserve that. Anyway, Pierce took a chance on it, more or less stood by the book, and it was published in Canada. It didn't sell all that well, but Doran published it in the states and. And hated it
0: so what you're telling me then is that Pierce his taste in literature wasn't necessarily defined by his religious background because it goes back and forth.
1: Yeah, it, it's partly defined by his religious background. Partly defined by the times, partly defined perhaps by something in him.
0: But it's not definably Cause anti... He's a, just because he's a United Church minister, no. He, he did take some risks. Yes. Uh, and then he was an, obviously an important, oh, yeah. as we've used the word, champion of yeah. Canadian literature yeah. for, for many, many years. Yeah. So let's then change gears and look back over the history of this company, the Ryerson Press and uh, Briggs and Methodist House, and look for books within that publishing house's output that would be particularly interesting for a collector.
1: Well, it depends what a collector is looking for. For instance, I can't really think of anything in the 90s. I did mention Catherine Parr Trails' Canadian Wildflowers. I think that was an edition of 1898. That might be a very rare book to get hold of if it ever came along.
0: Did that have the Briggs name on it? Yes. Yes.
1: Is, is a very attractive, unusual book. It
0: obviously stands out for you for a reason.
1: This is probably one of the more interesting books of the 19th century.
0: Canadian books?
1: Yeah, I think, I think she did more than one version of this book. One of the versions, the daughter, Agnes Fitzgibbon, actually hand-painted the, the illustrations. Now, I'm not sure if it's a first edition or a second edition. Now, that would be a very slow, painstaking process. It's not going to be an edition of 500 copies, maybe an edition of a couple hundred.
0: Maximum, yeah, you'd think.
1: Some of the 20th century ones that might be interesting would be Robert Service's Songs of a Sardo if you can get a first printing of it.
0: Certainly, there's probably high points that every antiquarian bookseller knows about that as a result costs an arm and a leg. What we're looking for would be books that are, yes, attractive, well designed, nicely printed, and that contain good content, but that that don't cost very much. (laughs) That's the criteria. I mean, it's good to know about these high points, too. Uh, what we're looking at here is Sam Slick in Pictures. Yes. The best of the humor of Thomas Chandler Halliburton, illustrated by C.W. Jeffries. Yes. Edited with an introduction by Lauren Pierce. Uh, that's kind of later. That's yes, published it is. in 1956. 56, yeah. Why do you like this book?
1: I like it for a number of reasons. I am very, very fond of Jeffries' historical drawings. Halliburton was somebody I was interested in because I did an edition of his Clockmaker and when I was doing the uh, book on publishing Halliburton played a rather large role because as the first Canadian to have an international reputation his career is a sort of paradigm for a lot of others that followed the the highs and the lows and the successes as well as the, the failures
0: can you tell me a bit about C.W. Jeffreys?
1: I can't tell you too much. He was a neighbour of Pierce's. They lived up, way up Yonge Street, close to Hogs Hollow, I think. And Pierce arranged for Jeffreys to do the series called The Picture Gallery of Canadian History. It runs from about 1942, maybe into the late 40s. There may be five or six volumes in that series
0: they say here that he was a competent historian and also an outstanding historical artist yes
1: he tried to get the clothing that people were wearing accurate the background
0: i've always liked them there's a caricature nature to them too
1: yes i have no idea if that's a book of some value or not
0: okay but uh, again, it's nice to know about Jeffreys, and mm-hmm. that that could be yes. a collecting focus hit books that he appears in.
1: Pierce was important because around 1923, he decided I've got to learn about Canadian literature because I keep hearing things. There's a whole lot, so he comes up with an anthology of Canadian literature with an older man who is a kind of mentor to him. The anthology's okay, but the same year he decided to get a series going called The Makers of Canadian Literature. It was going to be one of these things in French and English, and it was going to, I don't know, maybe 50 volumes or so. I think they only got about 13 volumes. It was not selling well, and this is one of the things that Phallus just said, that's it, <laughs> no more.
0: So what yeah, what it, are these?
1: Oh, well, there's a volume on Leacock, there's a volume on Halliburton, there's one on Peter MacArthur, there's one on Bliss Carman, there's one on Roberts, all the major writers of that period. Now, some some of the major writers didn't get done because I think their books <laughs> never were. Do
0: you know what they look like?
1: Uh, yes, they're not the standard size book. They're
0: kind of thin, so almost in your yeah, hand. Yeah, like very
1: small, a hardcover, yeah. smaller than the paperback. They would have a biography, uh, critical appraisals, and they would have some selections from the writer. He was Trying to do a number of things, but it was quite an undertaking. He was modeling it on the Makers of Canada series yeah. and the Canada and its provinces that was done 1914-15 by a publisher who died unexpectedly.
0: These had dust jackets.
1: They were hard, navy blue hardcover. They may have had dust jackets. Okay. I can't remember if I've ever seen them in dust jackets. The other series he came up with was the Ryerson Poetry Chapbooks, and they went on for, what, 20, 25 years? The Wind, Our Enemy, for example, is a very well-known one, and Marriott. A story or a poem about the prairies uh, during the really bad Depression years came out in 1939.
0: When were these launched?
1: I think 1927 or 28. And
0: would these be soft cover? Yeah.
1: This provided a publishing source for a great many poets who didn't see hard cover. There's a bit of a but break for them. Oh, oh, it was a real break, especially yeah. in the 1930s. Dorothy Roberts Leisner, who was Charles G.D. Roberts' niece, good poet in her own right, she lived in the States. Lloyd Roberts, his younger brother, Pierce, of course, after a while got known for uh, having a very uneven kind of taste, and it's it's unfortunate that by the 60s and the 70s, people like Mordecai Richler would say, oh, it's crap if it's come from Ryerson Press, yeah. which is unfair. And Pierce published a lot of readers. When I was a schoolboy, I was using these, these readers in the 40s and 50s. They were done with Macmillan of Canada, shared imprints. He'd got a lot of art series going, We did a number of interesting, innovative things. Like what? Well, the Makers of Canada is innovative. The Ryerson Poetry chapbooks, books, and McClellan and Stewart picks that up in the Indian file books of the late 40s. Once again, very nicely designed, probably better designed than the chapbooks.
0: books. Were there any books that came out of the press that they paid particular attention to the design and the type of the paper, and um, like pu- putting extra emphasis on, on the book as object?
1: I think Newfoundland Verse was one of these books. They were using Thoreau MacDonald in the the 1920s. Now, I don't know if he designed the whole book, but often he would design the dust jacket, and he might design the front page. and The end papers. The end papers, and and perhaps some of the illustrations. I think William Arthur Deacon's Pens and Pirates, which is a group of essays, was very nicely done. I'm not sure how happy Deacon was with it, but Deacon and Pierce... Pierce had a whole lot of relationships with literary people and others and sometimes they mm. were like that and the next, <laughs> a month later they, they'd be screaming at each other they they seemed to have very thin skins a lot of them
0: He uh, sounds very uh, mercurial in his taste and in his dealings. Perhaps he was touchy, but but it
1: may have had a lot to do with his health. He had undiagnosed lupus for years and years and years. I, I think once in a while he had a little bit of a nervous breakdown, but that was because he was so busy. He was yeah. writing books, he was editing books, he was on the move all the time, he was into everything. He just never stopped. He was a person who just drove himself continually. Yeah. Oh, yeah, He's a very interesting person. Yeah, well,
0: he, he also wrote about the press oh, and about, oh yeah, about yeah. publishing as, a, as yes. an enterprise, too, didn't he? Yeah.
1: Dickinson was a later steward, a book steward, who, who wrote a nice profile memoir of him. Uh, Pierce put out several books on publishing The Canadian Nation... There there are a lot of articles in magazines and in, in book form that he wrote about publishing and its connection to the cultural life of the nation, its importance in, in developing uh, an educated and, and cultivated, in, in all senses of the word, society. No doubt about it. I don't know if these would be uh, <laughs> collector's items, but he, he published Harold Innes' books for a while, several
0: prior to empire and communication oh yeah
1: well, political economy 1946 the cod fisheries 1940 there's I, I think there were one or two others that I didn't get
0: C- certainly i think uh, what will be of interest to many collectors would be the book as object yeah but i'm keen to get your take on on books that you think are particularly important
1: well Sometimes it's a novel like uh, Settlers of the Marsh. Sometimes it's a biography such as Evelyn Richardson's We Keep a Light, which helped her career in the late 40s so that she published several other books more fictional than that one. The the Pratt Newfoundland Verse, A.J.M. Smith, News of the Phoenix in the 1940s, one of that group of modernists. And, of course, Smith, uh, when this this book was published in 1943, was also bringing out an anthology of Canadian poetry by Gage. And and Smith was big news in 1943, in literary terms, I'm not saying in commercial terms. Although that, that anthology sold very, very well for... Well, over a decade. F.R. Scott's Overture 1945, another of that so called McGill group who didn't see much in the way of publication in the 30s, but suddenly in the 40s, you know, in midlife. P.K. Page, I think it's her first book of poetry. The other one, A.M. Klein's Rocking Chair, 1953, I think. It was one of Klein's first books. So here are some important poets, especially Klein, and the influence Klein has had on later poets. What
0: about Briggs? Anything stand out there? In
1: 1905, Briggs published a collected edition of Isabella Valencia Crawford's poems it's a rather handsome book. This is a woman who had now been dead for some years, who had a very small cult following in the late 19th century, in the late 40s and early 50s, a revival of interest in her, partly due to, I think, James Rainey, who found her a rather intriguing kind of writer, and she certainly is. So I'm thinking of poets like that, whose first book, really established them because before then they were really only publishing in journals.
0: So again, Pierce's legacy would be as someone who helped a lot of young Canadian poets and authors get their first books published. In that regard, Mm -hmm. he's a a very important character in the story of the Canadian book.
1: Yes. He had great enthusiasm. He went after authors. One of his favourite authors was a poet called Wilson MacDonald.
0: Wilson MacDonald signed every single one of the books that he ever published, it seems. I've never seen one without his signature in it.
1: He had to push his books, and he surely did, you know, uh, around the countryside. His poetry doesn't do anything to me, but, uh, you know, the age changes. That's not the only poet from that publisher or from Canadian or American or British publishers who, you know, oh, yeah. the, this is it. the taste. Yeah is just not there anymore. But I think he had some kind of market in his own day and age. Interestingly enough, Bliss, Carmen and Ed Pierce had a, a, a good friendship. He may have published a bit of Carmen, but uh, Carmen's major publisher in Canada was McClellan and Stewart. Uh, this, is, this is what Carmen wanted. Pierce became his literary executive after his death, and of course a lot of Carmen material is in the Pierce collection at Queen's and then Gundy became Pierce's executor <laughs> after after that uh and was also involved in, in printing Carmeside and Gundy who was a librarian was the nephew of SB Gundy the uh, m- the first manager of Oxford University Press okay. there's another Gundy in there who was vice president i think of Gage for many years interesting because the two Gundy brothers were on opposite sides of manufacturing clauses and copyright clauses and things like that okay. I used to get them all mixed up <laughs> until I realized we're talking about two people
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and of course Roberts the first big biography of Roberts by his girlfriend Elsie Pomroy was published in 1943 the woman he didn't marry
0: the other woman
1: one of the other women <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that was published by uh, Pierce and Harrison, wasn't y- it? Yes. Yeah.
1: Another work that was published in 1905 by Briggs was Roberts and the Influences of His Time by a Queen's professor, one of Pierce's professors, as a matter of fact, who said, in Canadian literature, <laughs> nothing. <laughs>
0: So he showed all the uh, foreign influences on uh, Roberts then? Uh,
1: well yes, trying to put Roberts into into a, a, place. A, a literary, well really a late 19th century romantic context and poor Roberts is up against Tennyson and Matthew Arnold, people like that.
0: I think that gives and, us a good start and it gives us a nice overview of the company yeah. and some of its the highlights.
1: And you know what happened to Ryerson? It was bought by McGraw-Hill in 1970. They weren't getting the authors that McClelland and Stewart and Macmillan were getting in those years. That was part of the problem, and things were getting sort of stale there. They had a series of publishers. Some of them were quite good, and went on, One of them went on to the McGill Queen's Press. Uh, another one went went on to become the, the first head of the Prentice Hall subsidiary in Canada.
0: So it served as a training ground. From then oh they yeah, left.
1: yeah. Ryerson wasn't catching on to what they had to. But in the early 60s, I think it was, they bought a new color press. Very, very, very expensive. Also, in 1966-67, the Ontario government decided to change the textbook regulations. They opened them up so that you weren't limited, say, to one or two textbooks for a certain grade in a, in a certain subject matter.
0: It gave the teachers some flexibility.
1: It, oh, that was great that way. <laughs>
0: but It, it also, basically wrecked
1: the education yeah. system. Macmillan didn't know what to do. Well, it wrecked publishers oh, oh, uh, who relied on Oh, yeah, on yeah, it, the, yeah the reliance. The business. The, yeah. Bryerson yeah. yeah. went up for sale. Macmillan was up for sale. McClellan and Stewart was up for sale. Gage was... Uh, sold to Scott Forsman and then repatriated again uh, by Canadians some years later.
0: All because of this ruling in 1960s. Well you
1: can't blame it only on that. The other thing was a cash flow problem.
0: All these publishers,
1: they've always had it but it was really bad in the the 60s. McClellan and Stewart overexpanded. You know, a hundred books in the hundredth anniversary, you know market this, publish this, publish that. I mean some marvellous books but they didn't always make money. It's Canadian bankers sometimes. It's in those newspaper articles just yesterday and today in The the Globe by John Barber and today by Anna Porter. Canadian banks really do not like lending money to Canadian publishers because it's too risky. Anna Porter is very (laughs) ironic about this. Oh, they'll take chances on... On other mortgages dot and dot yeah. coms and everything else like that, <laughs> billions of dollars, and and they won't even spend hundreds of thousands on the Canadian publishers. That's that's always been a case. I don't know if that was a problem with Briggs, but it certainly was a problem with George Morang in the 1900s that he yeah. was running into problems with banks and uh, Macmillan just jumped on him and was able to buy out his company and get a huge textbook market that mering had developed, yeah, quite successful with, and got the best textbook salesman in Canada, John Saul was his name, I think. Oh, and the other thing that changed, I think, in the 60s was that American subsidiaries and British subsidiaries started to set up larger subsidiaries in Canada. Uh, they... they pulled away their agencies from the uh, local companies. They set up their Canadian companies and decided, we will market Canadian textbooks. (laughs) Uh And and the next stage, of course, is we will market Canadian authors. (laughs) And and once they start doing this, uh, well, everything was changing anyway. The agency system fell apart in in the 1960s. Copyright changes came about. Suddenly, Canadian authors were... Selling like they would never sold before and winning prizes, you know, yeah. and that's been going on. That really hasn't hasn't stopped since it got under since that got underway really in the late forties, mid fifties, certainly in the sixties. Wow, just underway. So you know, poor Ryerson was one of the first to get caught in it. But while they survived, you know, from the nineties up to uh, really up to about nineteen sixty, this was, this was an important Canadian publisher and. Pierce had a lot to do with it.
0: I think we've done the job here. Thanks very much for telling us about it and Pierce and uh, sharing your insight. You're welcome. Thank you. (laughs) I've been speaking with Dr. George L. Parker, who's Professor Emeritus, Royal Military College of Canada, and the author of The Beginnings of the Book Trade in Canada and The Clockmaker, Series 1, 2, and 3, Thomas Chandler Halliburton. Thanks again.
1: Thank you.